Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 6th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Carnell. This week was a much-anticipated one for court watchers and really anyone interested in the functioning of American democracy as the Supreme Court opened its 2017 term and jumped immediately into some very thorny legal thickets, hearing cases on, among other things, arbitration, immigration, and gerrymandering. Probably the week's most notable arguments occurred in Gill v. Whitford, the political gerrymandering case, and to chat about those, we'll have Loyola Law School professor, noted election law scholar, and former U.S. Deputy Assistant Attorney General Justin Levitt on in just a bit, but first let's get to our opening briefs. By virtue of a very packed week, a couple of other consequential cases flew a bit under the radar, including three consolidated cases regarding the legality of mandatory individual arbitration clauses in employment contracts. The outcome, that question is certainly impacting millions and millions of contracts around the country. Um, One of those three consolidated cases arose out of the Ninth Circuit, and here with more about the arguments is our very own Ninth Circuit reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, In this case, we have the, the Federal Arbitration Act put up against the National Labor Relations Act. Um, so the one, of course, protects the viability of arbitration clauses and contracts, and the other protects the rights of employees to collectively act to their their benefit and uh, to protect their their rights in the workplace. Um, some, some very close cases in the Supreme Court over the last few years have, have generally vindicated arbitration in some, some different contexts, consumer clauses, uh, contracts between companies and, and the like. Um, in those cases, Justice Kennedy's vote's always been important, and he's been pretty uniformly pro-arbitration. Here, he's probably viewed, again, as the swing vote. How, what, what could you glean from the arguments? Did he show his hand at all as to which way he might be leaning here? Right. Well, you know, it's always difficult to tell exactly where a justice is going to land. Um, Kennedy has consistently been in the pro-arbitration camp. Um, and so, uh, you know, the jury, I guess, is sort of split in terms of how people are interpreting his questions. Um, I've heard a couple of hope labor lawyers uh, say that they think he might be able to rule in favor of um, of employees. But most people are generally in the consensus that uh, he'll probably uphold the arbitration agreements. Um, one of his lines of questioning was about whether employees could effectively hire the same lawyer but continue with separate arbitration suit. And he he implied during arguments that that would act as concerted activity as protected under Section 7. So he seemed to at least explain a, a method by which these employees could continue under Section 7 in concerted activity, but still within the context of individual arbitration. So it seemed on the face of the arguments that he'll likely uphold the uh, employer's position. On on Kennedy's left and and right, what were sort of the most salient lines of questioning brought to bear by the, the conservative and more liberal black of the court? The conservative block of the court was a little bit more quiet. Uh, Thomas, as always, did not ask any questions. Gorsuch, notably, was silent during the entire oral argument. Um, but I guess the conservative uh, point of view on the bench was the vagueness of Section 7. Um, Alito and, and Roberts really tried to point out that concerted activities is a very broad, vague statement. And... and uh, arguing that there's somehow enshrined in that legislation uh, a right to arbitrate or bring suits together um, is not necessarily protected by that language. The liberal 
um, wing of the court, um, they made it clear that, that this is a really big issue. Uh, Justice Breyer said that finding in favor of the employers could cut at the heart of uh, labor and employment law going back to the New Deal. Um, a lot, big part of the dispute is these two conflicting federal statutes, and, and the employers have argued that the FAA trumps um, the National Labor Relations Act, but Kagan said, well, what if you had a uh, arbitration a clause that was patently discriminatory? Um, wouldn't that be in violation of federal law? And the employers uh, conceded that that was, so her point was that uh, the FAA doesn't necessarily trump every uh, federal statute. So, I mean, it was pretty uh, expected arguments from either side. One of these cases of the Consolidated Three arose from the Ninth Circuit, and the ruling there favored the NLRA employee argument. Um, so it's created some some binding circuit precedent that's been applied in lower courts, including uh, at the district level, um, in a pretty major case involving Uber. Um, I guess a lot of those cases are probably in, in holding patterns, essentially, now waiting for this ruling, yeah? Right. So uh, district courts have been applying the Ernst & Young versus Morris precedent as they uh, are required to do. The Ninth Circuit previously held in a split decision that uh, that the FAA does not uh, protect uh, arbitration agreements like this and that, that mandatory arbitration agreements are violative of labor laws. A lot of those cases have made their way to the Ninth Circuit, um, and they're pending, um, you know, the decision um, in the Supreme Court. Uh, the most recent one is a pretty highly watched litigation over Uber's employment practices and whether it um, improperly classifies its employees as freelancers or its drivers. So um, a lot of attorneys are expecting once this decision comes down to, you know, see an, an influx of movement on these appeals. Uh, maybe just one last one. As you mentioned, there's been a lot of arbitration cases that have come before the Supreme Court in different sort of contexts, um, this one in the employment context. If this one does go the way the other ones have gone in favor of arbitration, in favor of the uh, employers, um, is that sort of the last frontier for these arbitration fights? Or from the sense you've gotten from attorneys, do you think there could still be challenges uh, to arbitration clauses in other contexts? The uh, the impression I got is that there will continue to be challenges going forward. This is such a hot-button issue, and the Ninth Circuit and the California Supreme Court have continually showed, um, you know, a an unwillingness to accept that, that companies can just uniformly impose these arbitration agreements. And so lawyers on both sides uh, expect that there will be continued challenges. The more the Supreme Court rules on these cases, it will be harder and harder to bring suits challenging it. And so that's the big question that no one's quite sure of yet is if uh, if the Supreme Court finds in favor of the employers, what exactly will be the next form of challenge to these uh, arbitration agreements? Okay. Uh, Nick Sonnenberg, our Ninth Circuit reporter. Thanks for being on the show, Nick. Thanks for having me, Brian. Jennings versus Rodriguez, the court wrestled once again after hearing arguments last term but refraining from issuing an opinion with the question of the constitutional rights afforded detained non-citizens at the border. Specifically, justices considered whether a firm six-month time limit between apprehension and a bond hearing, which the Ninth Circuit prescribed in the lower proceedings, was appropriate, or whether the plenary power of Congress to police immigration made more indefinite, prolonged detentions constitutionally permissible. Here's more is Dean Kevin Johnson from UC Davis Law School. 
Dean Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. This case, Jennings versus Rodriguez, of course, we heard now again this term after being argued last term, but not reaching a, a decision. It seems to put um, two competing equities on the stage here, uh, sort of the constitutional rights of arriving aliens at the border to the, the extent they exist, and uh, the doctrine giving Congress kind of plenary power to police immigration. Is that a, a fair way to frame it? I think it is a fair way, and the, the broader question and the challenging question that really hasn't been fully answered in 200 years of constitutional jurisprudence is, uh, does the Constitution apply to immigrants, and if so, how? Um, and, and on the one hand, we have the, the plenary power doctrine, uh, a body of um, court-made law established uh, in the beginning during the, the era where the Chinese exclusion laws were being passed by Congress and the court upheld those. Uh, and on the other hand is, um, you know, the, the general view uh, that people in detention uh, have some kind of right to a hearing and possible release if they're not a danger to the community um, or, or a flight risk. Uh, and so, so we we have these sort of two competing principles, and and we're we're seeing where the court's going to uh, go with them in this case, and it's um, made it for a very interesting um, reading. Did the government try to stake out that position, or stake out the maybe the the most extreme position that arriving aliens have have no constitutional rights? And it seems like a position that the court would be pretty keen to, to push back on our certain justices, at least, and that, that did so, uh, presenting, I think, Justice Kagan presented a hypo that if that's the case, that certain things like torture or forced labor would then, you'd have to admit, be okay uh, to be imposed on those folks, right? Yeah, I think one of the surprising parts of the argument and, and one of the uh, arguments in the brief well, by, by the United States was that um, Immigrants at the border or people seeking entry at the border have absolutely no constitutional rights. That's the beginning and the end of the inquiry. Uh, so there, there's sort of a constitutionally constitutional free zone for people seeking entry into the country. Uh, and as you mentioned, Justice Kagan said, well, wait, stop. What, what about forced labor? What about torture? Obviously, we couldn't do that. Uh, and, and what the United States said was, well, we're talking about the the terms of admission, not not necessarily treatment. Um, um, but but then Justice Breyer later in the argument said, "Well, why why shouldn't these folks be able to get some kind of bond hearing if they're in custody? We we give triple axe murders uh, suspects of triple axe murders uh, bond hearings. We may not give them bond, uh, but but why wouldn't we give these folks bond if uh, they, they're fighting removal and seeking admission to the country?" Um, Justice Sotomayor uh, heard the government's argument and said, you know, that's lawless. How could that be? Uh, so I think you're right. There was some uh, pretty formidable pushback uh, from from a number of justices. And, and it, you know, e even Chief Justice Roberts said, well, you have to admit that, as your brief seems to suggest, you know, 14 months in detention certainly seems uh, like an unreasonable length of time to be held in custody without a hearing. And, and, and he even suggested that he read the government's brief is, is almost conceding that that would be unconstitutional. So, so I think uh, it, it's, you know, there's certainly a group of justices who have some questions about the constitutionality of indefinite detention without a hearing. And in fact, that's 
One of the reasons the court asked for specific briefing on the constitutionality, um, after the initial briefing in the case, after the oral arguments in the case, the court asked for more briefing on the constitutionality of indefinite detention. So you get the sense that they're poised to really look closely at this question. As ever, the, the position and the, the sentiments of Justice Kennedy will be pretty important in this case. I had two questions on that. One, if this case was argued last term and then put off uh, until the court had, had nine members, should one feel comfortable assuming that perhaps the court was at a 4-4 split, which would mean that Justice Kennedy was sort of falling in with the, the more conservative block? And if that's the case now that we have a, a member of the court added by a conservative and pretty enthusiastically um, you know, anti-illegal immigration president, um, that, that would give one the impression that perhaps there'd be five votes kind of uh, on the conservative side. But um, did Justice Kennedy give some indication that perhaps he might be more um, willing to, to see some constitutional limits to uh, the, in, in this question? I think Justice Kennedy seemed to suggest that he thought there must be some constitutional limits to the detention of immigrants and just people seeking entry in the country. It was unclear precisely how far he would go. I mean, because you could say that there's constitutional limits uh, and uh, it should be remanded to the lower court to you know determine what those limits are, or or, or he, he could say uh, there are constitutional limits and indefinite detention violates those limits. Uh, but it seemed to, he seemed to be in agreement with the justices who thought there were some limit and seemed to be troubled by the government's very expansive position. And I think Justice Gorsuch, too, um, seemed a bit troubled by the fact that, um, you know, citizens, uh, whether it's for civil um, detention for, for mental health issues uh, or, or criminal detention for, for um, criminal issues, um, where citizens are guaranteed a hearing, to establish whether they might be eligible for release, um, it, it seems very incongruous to give immigrants who are who are accused of no crime no hearing, no possibility for release, no judicial review, uh, and ab- absolutely no constitutional rights. And I, I think it's not necessarily the case that, um, uh, that Justice Gorsuch will, will side with uh, the government here. And, and I also think you know, there was. It, it, it does raise, this case does raise some co- difficult constitutional issues. Uh, probably the court was having a hard time reaching a decision. Uh, and, and I think uh, now, uh, with, with the further briefing, with nine justices on the court, um, it, it's hard to guess how the court's going to come out. So I, I wouldn't guess for sure the United States was going to win or, or that the United States was going to lose. But I, but I do think uh, that there's certainly some differences of opinion. And Justice Alito uh, who often can be thought of as siding with, with the government on these immigration enforcement issues, also seem to, to be, be a little troubled by, by um, the prospect of indefinite detention. And none of the justices seem to suggest that uh, an absolute plenary power approach to this problem would be acceptable. Dean Kevin Johnson from UC Davis School of Law, thanks so much for being on the podcast to chat about the case with us. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks very much. Perhaps the thorniest of thickets the court considered wading into this week involves political gerrymandering, phenomenon all the justices seem to agree has long been anti-democratic and bedeviling, but one the courts never found meet for a constitutional doctrine to prevent. Here now to discuss the arguments is Professor Justin Levitt, Loyola Law School, a noted election law and constitutional law scholar, and until January, Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division in Washington. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. 
Before we discuss the Gil versus Whitford arguments, in that case, one of, if not the the headliner in a pretty stacked opening week for the Supreme Court, I just wanted to touch on some of your background and experience in the, the voting rights election law context, um, because you've you worked on these issues for uh, much of your career, but but really from a kind of diversity of different vantage points and, and positions. Um, I mentioned your post with the Department of Justice, but also spent time on presidential campaigns, including um, Barack Obama's in 2008. Um, spent time in the nonprofit space. Uh, of course, as a researcher and professor at a number of law schools. Um, so you, you bring a, a diversity of experiences and viewpoints to, to bear when you, you speak and, and do research on, on these issues. So I'd like to kind of unpack uh, all, all of that briefly before we touch sure. on the political journey mandering issue um, before the court in Gill versus Whitford. Um, maybe starting in 2008 uh, as the National Voter Protection Council on Barack Obama's campaign, you, your role is a little bit unique in that you weren't trying to persuade folks to vote for Barack Obama, but instead identifying folks that already wanted to, intended to vote for him, and were eligible to do so. And your goal was to make sure that they could cast their ballot successfully and have their ballot stick, essentially. Um, tell me a bit more about that. Um, what uh, what were the impediments that you you identified and encountered that stood between folks that wanted to vote for uh, Barack Obama, and and how did you work to combat them? And I should mention, actually, in that role, um, although we certainly sort of targeted it was a was a campaign after all, uh, we targeted the work that we were doing uh, for for folks who intended to vote for Obama, but the work that we were doing, and particularly the work that that I and my team were doing. Um, was about people who were eligible and wanted to vote, making sure that they could and that it would stick. And it wasn't exclusive in that sense. Um, that is, the problems are systemic and the solutions are systemic, and we didn't trouble ourselves over much uh, if we were helping people who didn't want to vote for Obama come out to the polls and vote as long as they were eligible. Um, and that was very much in keeping with my role, with other roles I've had in a more nonpartisan capacity. Um, and so, you know, a, a friendlier place to be. Because um, it's really just about helping people who want to vote and are eligible to vote actually do so, making sure it counts. Sure. Um, so the biggest systemic problems, I would say, uh, fall into two categories. There's a, a small uh, comparative percentage that trace themselves back to intentional attempts uh, to keep people from voting even though they're eligible, and a far, 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 far larger uh, percentage of the time falls down to mistakes or circumstances or other things that sort of just get in the way. An awful lot of what happens on election day is logistics, um, and what happens in the days leading up to election day are logistics. And it's making sure the logistics run smoothly uh, turns out to be a very, very, very big job. Um, we pay for elections on the cheap. It is not often a uh, signature budget item for many municipalities, for many counties, for many states. Um, and we sometimes see that in the results. Uh, we get, in, in many circumstances, what we pay for, and we don't pay a lot. And that means that there are holes and pitfalls and potholes in the process to casting and counting about um, that swallow up real people uh, that shouldn't. And, and that's leaving aside sort of the, the more nefarious, more malevolent attempts to keep people from the polls. Um, there are a lot of obstacles that end up getting in the way, um, even when folks aren't trying to put them in the way. And so those 
predictable but not intentional barriers uh, end up affecting far more people, I think, along the process, along the way. Can you give me just uh, maybe one example of something that is unintentional but, but predictable? So uh, the process that we have for voter registration is in many ways the gateway uh, to the election process. Um, wasn't always the way. Registration sort of arose in the early 19th century um, and has ebbed and flowed. But in many ways, the structure that we have for voter registration looks an awful lot like a 19th century structure. Um, much of the process is done by paper. Much of the process depends on individual citizens stepping forward. Um, much of the process sort of has to be repeated over and over and over and again from the start when people move or when their circumstances change. And it's not that different from uh, a very antiquated view of how elections work. Um, and not that different from, from structures in place, you know, not that long after the Civil War. That is getting better, but some of those old problems still trap real people. Um, for example, you fill out a voter registration form and it becomes a handwriting test. A temp enters the information off of that voter registration form and maybe they misspell your name, maybe they misspell your street, maybe they misspell, uh, you know, hit, hit a fat finger on a keyboard and your birthday gets changed. And that impacts your registration status and whether you can find yourself on the poll books later on. Um, nobody claims that that's intentional, but that sort of hiccup uh, actually causes problems for real people at the polls all the time. Before and then for a time after that election, you, you also were doing some pretty similar work for the for the Brennan Center, right? a, a nonpartisan nonprofit. Um, there, you're not working to elect a particular candidate, but just ensuring folks that are eligible to vote can do so. Was the work that you were doing there pretty similar to when you were on the campaign? What sort of things might have been different about that? It was similar in the scope of the problems we were trying to address, all the way from, uh, well, actually, it was more expansive in the scope of the problems we were trying to address. So at the Brennan Center, we concerned ourselves with the entire election ecosystem, from who's eligible to vote, to where the district lines are drawn, to how campaigns are financed, to the mechanics of casting and counting ballots, uh, to the tally of a recount. Um, and to the governance structures afterward. It's it's a very soup-to-nuts approach to elections and to representation. Um, necessarily, work on a campaign's a little more limited to, you know, to casting and counting of ballots. A lot of that can't be, a lot of that other stuff can't be uh, addressed in the time allotted. Um, and necessarily, the work at the Brennan Center was rigorously nonpartisan. So I represented Republicans and Democrats. I advised Republicans and Democrats. I sued Republicans and Democrats. Um, I testified before Republicans and Democrats. I helped draft legislation for Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it was not a, and, and I should add, all the above for third parties as well. The nonpartisan nonprofit world was really focused on addressing the problem, and sometimes uh, different officials from different stripes had different approaches to that problem. We worked with whoever we could. Fast forward a few years, you're with the Department of Justice as a deputy assistant attorney general working on voting rights and election law issues. Um, you mentioned to me before we started re recording that sometimes, though you are endowed with some, some pretty deep resources, when you work for the federal government's Department of Justice, you might not you might have fewer tools. You might be able to might not be able to work on as many problems or counteract some of the the problems that you see. Is that problem because election laws? Or elections are by and large state-run 
affairs, and so the federal government maybe has less opportunity or less constitutional purchase to to get involved? I think it has less to do with the fact that they're state-run as the fact that the federal executive branch enforces federal statutes. Um, and so those federal statutes, Congress has only seen fit to address certain parts of the election ecosystem and has only given the Department of Justice certain tools to do so. Uh, it's a it's in many ways, uh, you know, a far more powerful battleship. I, I sure wished when I was working in a nonprofit that I had some of the resources of the Department of Justice for sure, um, but addressed to a much, much, much narrower set of circumstances. Um, there are limitless state laws and state regulations and constitutional provisions and federal statutes that impact election processes across the country. Um, there are a very small set of federal laws that the Department of Justice enforces. Um, the uh, provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the National Voter Registration Act, um, the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, these are big statutes and important ones. Uh, the Help America Vote Act of 2002 after, after the election of 2000 really, really big statutes, but limited. They address certain parts of the election ecosystem in certain ways, and only very specific things are violations of those laws. And uh, the Department of Justice is focused like a laser beam on those violations. It, there's, there's a little bit of a, a misunderstanding, I think, in the public sphere. Totally understandable, because people see the Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division and they think that naturally the people sitting in those positions have the power and authority to address civil rights concerns in order to further justice. And that's sort of true, but there are an awful lot of civil rights concerns that are uh, really meet for constitutional claims or civil rights concerns that are meet for state legal claims that federal law doesn't touch. And the Civil Rights Division of the Federal Department of Justice only addresses uh, that which is within its federal statutory purview, and people are acutely conscious of that. Could you give me perhaps an example of something that is kind of out of the reach of the, the Department of Justice, but something that is instead best or only handled through litigation? Sure. Actually, most prominent election litigation uh, is dependent on a claim that the and it's not most election litigation, but the stuff that makes the front pages is dependent on a claim that the process in question is unjustifiably and unnecessarily burdensome. It's a claim under the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment that the procedure at issue uh, imposes burdens sometimes on all of the population, sometimes on some of the population that aren't justified. Um, that the, the costs are, are massively disproportionate to the benefits. There's no statute that covers that. There's no federal statute anyway that covers that um, for executive enforcement. Um, there's one federal statute that, that plaintiff's attorneys, civil rights attorneys are abundantly familiar with, uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983, that allows aggrieved individuals to bring claims under the Constitution. But the Department of Justice hasn't interpreted its own authority to permit that. And so there is no specific congressional federal statute 
that addresses this claim that an election regulation is too burdensome. So, um, for example, when litigation over uh, photo ID rules, something that's a really hot button uh, in the election world, when uh, litigation over the photo ID rules reached the Supreme Court, the claim there was a claim under the First and Fourteenth Amendment, this undue burden type of claim. And the Department of Justice wasn't really involved at all uh, because there's no federal statute that's enforced by the Civil Rights Division that covered it. From from that vantage point in the DOJ around the time of the 2016 election, were the sorts of salient issues or, or fights being had pretty similar to the ones that you had you had worked uh, worked on back in say 2008 as part of the Obama campaign? Are there had things evolved? Were there were different salients that were uh, the ones that attracted attention? I would say many of the issues out in the public. Um, that were salient were very similar. And of course, we're now learning of, of the issues from the 2016 campaign that, that the public might not have known of quite so much that, that seem to be different, um, including some questions of international interference. Um, but many of the questions that people recognized seemed to be similar. Um, and, and I'll also say, you know, for those of us that remember it well and sometimes painfully well, uh, many of the issues in the 2000 election were very similar to the issues that arose in 2008, were very similar to the issues that arose in 2016. And the issues in 2000 weren't new. They just happened to be newly determinative uh, in a very, 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 very public way. Um, but we've we've been struggling with some of these same issues that recur election cycle after election cycle, not just in presidential elections, but all the time, uh, for a very long time. If you looked at the... Many people think that the 2000 election was... Uh, really decided on the basis of hanging chads, little punched holes in paper ballots that determine the result. But for those of us that have looked at it more closely, uh, there were dozens of issues, any one of which alone would have driven the difference not only in Florida but in other states. Um, chads got the headlines, but there were problems with absentee ballots, there were problems with voter registration, there were problems with purges, there were problems with uh, disenfranchisement of people with criminal convictions. There were problems with tallying the ballots. There were problems with ballot security. There were problems with on and on and on and on. And many of those same uh, issues were issues of concern in 2002 and 4 and 6 and 8 and 10 and 12 and 14 and 16. Um, at the Department of Justice, for many of the same reasons we talked about before, the issues may have been that may have been most salient in 2016 weren't necessarily uh, issues within the enforcement authority of the Federal Justice Department. And so many of the issues of concern more generally uh, were not necessarily issues that fell within justice's purview. Um, there were some that were the same that were within the enforcement authority of the Department of Justice. And the most salient of those within the Justice Department's authority were often issues of racial discrimination and uh, violation of the Federal Voting Rights Act, which is something that the Civil Rights Division strongly enforces. Um, and a lot of those concerns were exacerbated by a decision that was new for the presidential election process a decision in 2013 that took away a rather significant part of the Justice Department's enforcement authority. Um, 
it it gutted a provision of the Voting Rights Act that allowed federal officials to stop the most discriminatory laws before they went into effect. Um, that had been sort of a, a an enforcement tool in place since 1965 was gutted in 2013, and 2016 was the first presidential election after this rather momentous change. And that the primary cause is that uh, the Justice Department was playing defense far more than offense. That is, it was attempting to push back against laws that were not only in effect but active, um, rather than stopping the laws before they caused problems. That Shelby County decision from, from 2013? Um... Right. 2016 was a, it was a pretty notable election for a number of reasons. One that you, you mentioned is some potentially insidious foreign interference. Um, but as a, you know, someone overseeing voting rights issues in the Department of Justice, were you like, uh, every, um, civilian sort of watching with curiosity and potentially or as to whether there was some insidious influence or is there anything, did you feel like there was some special action or purchase that the, the, the Department of Justice had to maybe investigate or look into or or fight against anything like that if it were happening? So this gets into a couple different questions. One is the statutory authority of the Department of Justice, in particular of the Civil Rights Division. Um, there are different divisions within the Department of Justice enforcing different parts of federal law, including federal law bearing on voting rights. Um, many people don't know this, but most of the provisions against voter fraud or voter intimidation, um, most of those are enforced by the Department of Justice if they're in federal law, but not by the Civil Rights Division. Um, they're enforced by the Criminal Division of the Department. Um, and similarly, there are other, there's the National Security Division of the Department uh, and several other wings of the Department of Justice that have different enforcement authorities, including enforcement authority pertaining to uh, different types of foreign misconduct. Um, so there's a question about, about what the Civil Rights Division, what I was doing, is in part based on you know our enforcement authority, which is largely domestic and doesn't largely cover uh, most of, of at least the allegations at present. And again, when you're, when you're a federal government official, you are keenly aware of your jurisdiction and your authority. And so that was something that we took very seriously, um, is not getting out in front of what Congress has, has said that we could do. Um, and the second question is, is sort of what I was able to see. And that's something where I'm not uh, able to say a lot of what I was able to see. We received classified briefings. They um, covered some things and they didn't cover other things. And Again, as a former government official, uh, that's something we also take very seriously is the obligation to um, keep that which was classified, classified. And so uh, I don't know if there's that much more I can say about about what it was that we saw. Um, but I can tell you that most of the present allegations aren't allegations of activity that the Civil Rights Division had the capacity or, or authority to enforce. Um, that's, I think, the first. Um, I can't answer that. That's a classified answer on our podcast. So uh, that's uh, that's pretty fun. Um, you mentioned Happy voter, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned voter fraud. That's another reason, another way in which this election was pretty notable, and that it's it's Victor made some claims uh, both before and after the election that of, of of 
prevalent voter fraud, you, as you say, that's sort of the more the purview of the criminal department than the civil rights division. Uh, but maybe sort of speaking more broadly, as you've worked on voting rights issues, um, I suppose one could describe the work that you've done as you want to make it easier for folks who are eligible to vote um, to cast their ballot. Um, and is there lurking kind of in the background there, or is there some tension with the other proposition that making it easier to vote for folks who are eligible to do so makes it potentially easier for folks to, to cast fraudulent ballots? Is that something that's kind of part of the calculus, part of the, I don't know, some, something you have in mind? Yeah, absolutely. It is. And here, so you're right, I'll, I'll shift hats. Um, and so as not to confuse listeners, it really is uh, not the purview of the Civil Rights Division to be investigating voter fraud, so I don't want to pretend that any of this work was done with that hat on. But in my academic role and in my, in my uh, work on as a nonpartisan advocate, um, I've done fairly extensive research into voter fraud and its prevalence and uh, fairly extensive policy work into election rules and laws. And um, I think you put it right. There are two parts of the calculus. I, I think there are few people who are looking uh, with clear eyes at both parts of that calculus, and I wish there were more. Um, the expressed goal of the Help America Vote Act of 2002 after the 2000 election is to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. And I think that most Americans, I mean, that's, that's a bumper sticker slogan as much as it is a, a statement of congressional intent. And I think most Americans would agree with that slogan, make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. They're not always diametrically opposed, and I think there's been a false equivalent set up. Um, many of the procedures to make it easier to vote um, don't also make it easier to cheat. Uh, expanding early voting, uh, voting before Election Day is a primary example. Um, those are elections that are held under, or election votes that are cast under much the same procedures as Election Day. They just happen to be on a different day of the week. Um, that expands the opportunities for people who may otherwise be committed to uh, work or home or child care or, or other things on you know, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November uh, to cast valid ballots and doesn't seem to offer any incremental opportunity for misconduct at all. Um, I give that as one example, but there are certainly ways to, to press on one side of the lever without any concern about also pressing on the other side of the lever. Um, there are also policies that could theoretically uh, expand eligibility while also expanding the opportunity for fraud. And there, really, I have urged in the past and continue to urge uh, cost-benefit analysis. Um, and that cost-benefit analysis is apparent to anybody who seeks greater flexibility and security in their daily lives anywhere. Um, when I walk down the street, I don't walk in a plastic gerbil bubble. I could. It would probably protect me from myself and others in a lot of different ways, but it would also be rather inconvenient. And so I've made the calculation that that benefit isn't worth the cost. Um, I have a house. The house has windows. I like the windows. I could brick in the windows, but I choose not to because even though bricking in the windows would make my house immeasurably more secure, I have calculated that that benefit isn't worth the cost. And, and we all do this all the time. I plan to drive from my office home tonight, and there are umpteen different ways that could end in disaster, but I make the calculation that uh, the flexibility is something that is worth the cost to me. 
I think this approach applied to elections uh, is eminently sensible. And where there is a big problem of potential fraud or potential wrongdoing, uh, that is certainly worth considering measures, even better if the measures don't come with the consequence of shutting eligible people out of the process. And so, for example, you're hearing a lot more talk about enhancing cybersecurity around uh, state-based registration systems and around um, actual voting systems, and I'm all for it. Because anytime you can increase security without shutting eligible people out of the process, there's no reason not to. On the other hand, if the cost of added security uh, actually involves shutting eligible people out of the process or making it meaningfully more difficult, then I think it behooves us to know what's the real problem we're facing, how big is the real problem we're facing, and how big of a problem are we creating? That is, are we making policy where uh, the purported solution is actually costlier than the initial problem? Are we trying to create something where uh, essentially the, the cure is worse than the disease? And it's in this regard that I think a lot of people are skeptical of the president and, and former candidates uh, claims about the rate of voter fraud in the system. There is no doubt, and I have studied this tremendously, there's absolutely no doubt that voter fraud happens. There is also widespread consensus that it happens in some ways far more than others. And there's also widespread consensus that in most of the ways that it happens, it doesn't happen very often. And so we ought to be careful about taking steps to combat black swan events, to combat lightning strikes that actually make the system less available for lots of people in order to shut out very rare occurrences of, you know, individual problems. Um, that's not sensible policy for anybody in their daily lives, and I don't think it's sensible policy for the government. You know, we could uh, maybe turn to the, the Whitford arguments um, on extreme political gerrymandering, but maybe um, before we get into the, what happened at the arguments, could you maybe place for me that, that phenomenon of extreme political gerrymandering on kind of a hierarchy of problems you see in, um, in, in election law, um, along with other ones that you've written about, like the, the truncating of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County, um, voter fraud, as we just talked about, um, campaign finance um, that might cause people to think that corporate donations have more to do with election results than, than their own votes? Um, where does political gerrymandering, how, how big of a problem is it on the spectrum of electoral law issues? Pretty big and unnecessary is the way I'd put it. Um, so this is one of those areas where I think uh, it's a fairly significant problem and one that you could, you could actually fix without creating a lot of uh, other unfortunate consequences. Um, and, and some of the issues in campaign finance or some of the issues in election administration are trickier uh, to resolve without the unintended negative consequences. This one's easier. Um, and we know that it's easier because states have actually done it, uh, some states on their own, where it's possible for the people to actually decide that they would rather be choosing their representatives uh, rather than having representatives choose their people. So the problem of political gerrymandering uh, does not fix all of the political structure uh, if we can fix it. It, it, is, it is not, unfortunately, uh, much though I'd, I'd wish it were so, the single magic bullet that makes politics better. Um, 
actually there is one single magic bullet and that is the people caring about their politics if more of us were more active more of the time uh, about the representation we demand and deserve we'd get better representation um, and in a structure where there is 11 percent municipal turnout in a really high turnout election and where there's 40% turnout in a federal midterm election, where there's 60% turnout in the federal presidential election, um, and where most people are rewarding bad behavior when they go to the polls, we get the behavior we deserve. Um, we get the behavior we're asking for. Um, so an awful lot of, of the single magic bullet in fixing the problem is us. Uh, Ben Franklin, when he emerged from the Constitutional Convention, was asked what kind of government we had, and he said a republic if you can keep it right. and an awful lot of the keeping of it is hard work and work that, that we the people really need to be doing ourselves far more often um, but partisan gerrymandering drawing district lines uh, for personal or party gain rather than the public interest is a serious concern um, it leads to representation that is not equitable. It leads to representation that does not reflect the electorate. Um, and it leads to not only frustration and disconnect from elected officials, uh, it leads to policy that a majority of the people don't agree with. Um, and I should also mention that this is a bipartisan problem um, Partisan gerrymandering happens generally when one party has control of the levers of government and draws district lines in order to enhance their own control and shut out the opposition. And it is something that Democrats have done when they've been in charge. It's something that Republicans have done when they've been in charge. It is in that sense very equal opportunity. It just doesn't work out equally. Um, and if you ask uh, Democrats, how they feel about the district lines in Wisconsin, where this case in the Supreme Court came from, or North Carolina, they will tell you they're furious. And if you ask Republicans how they feel about the district lines in Maryland or in Illinois, they'll tell you they're furious. And uh, after the next election, whoever's not in charge will tell you they're furious about the way the lines are going to be drawn. So this is very much a problem that um, Americans are ticked off about and whether you happen to be ticked off at the moment probably depends on whether your party drew the lines last time or not. Yeah, it's a problem in that regard and that both sides will, I guess, be disadvantaged by it and be angry about it, yet its solution seems sort of elusive. But maybe it's perhaps because of that that both sides will could see around the corner benefiting from it, I guess. Yeah, and it's that seeing around the corner that makes the difference. So. People, when, when people have had the authority to pass ballot initiatives, when they've had the authority to, to sort of reframe the political system on their own, um, you see bipartisan majorities of people taking the power back for themselves. Uh, and that's true in, in liberal states and conservative states. California has done it and Arizona has done it, but Idaho and Washington state have done it too. Um, when that's not an option when people can't actually uh, file a ballot initiative on their own. It has taken some political courage and the ability to see past the immediate future in order to get change. 
and one of the things that's made that possible is when people have have taken change now to affect years from now. Uh, so to go into effect, not next year, but in 10 years. And in the life of most state legislators, uh, they can see right around the corner, but 10 years from now, all of them think that they're going to be governor or U.S. senator or president, and district lines <laughs> aren't going to matter anymore. I just wanted to, to, to precisely frame the question presented to the court, because it it's importantly, it's not whether or not the court should or not declare political gerrymandering unconstitutional, full stop, but instead whether there's some line to be drawn right between acceptable political machinations and extreme political gerrymandering that unconstitutionally and unduly will entrench a party uh, durably into power for you know from one census to the next right i think i think both are actually true so i think you're right in the description of the the narrow version of the question but in order to get there um the court's going to have to decide whether it needs to be or wants to be in this business at all so uh, when, the, when the court last addressed this issue was 13 years ago, uh, it was in 2004, in a case out of Pennsylvania, and nine justices, all nine at the time, said that excessive partisanship in the redistricting process is unlawful. But that's not the end of the story, because they then split rather bitterly on two questions. They split bitterly on the question of how much is excessive, and who should say? So four justices said, we can't know how much is excessive, and so the court should be out of this business entirely. That's the broader question you framed. Four justices said, of course we can know how much is excessive. Here are three different tests and three different opinions to tell you exactly how much is excessive. And Justice Kennedy, sitting in, in the center Hollywood Square, as he so often is, said, I think the court should be in this business, but I haven't heard a test I like yet, so give me some. It was as public a plea, I think, as anybody has heard uh, about enticing or entreating lawyers to solve a problem for the court. In this case that's now before the court, as you say, so there's the lingering background question of should the courts be involved in this issue at all? That is, should they weigh in on whether partisan gerrymandering is ever unconstitutional or not. But the more specific question is is exactly right, as you framed it. It's whether it is constitutionally acceptable for one political party to intentionally and deliberately and durably entrench themselves in power by uh, intentionally and deliberately and durably limiting the power of an opposing party and using the state government as the engine of that process. You mentioned Justice Kennedy. Obviously, his vote will be a pretty important one here as as ever. Uh, he, he noted at the, the beginning of oral argument that, that standing question, and partially because of that previous case and ones that have come before it um, that have come down on the side of courts staying out of it, um, give the original plaintiffs here no great precedent to stand on when it comes to making the case for standing. Um, but one thing he did say, though, is that if you ground this case in First Amendment doctrine as opposed to 14th, that the, sta- the case for standing gets stronger. Uh, if, you, if you have a sense of what what he means by that and how that is firmer constitutional footing for standing here. Yep. So the the you're absolutely right. You brought up a third question issue. The first uh, that we talked about is justiciability. And the third is... Uh, a particular standard for partisan gerrymandering, but in between is a question about standing. Uh, 
and which plaintiffs are the appropriate ones to come before the court. Um, the plaintiffs here in this case, or at least the court was focused on, uh, plaintiffs who came from a uh, very liberal part of Wisconsin, a very democratic part of Wisconsin from Madison, and um, Wisconsin was saying, you haven't been injured, you're in a very democratic district, what are you complaining about? Um, your representative is exactly the person you would hope it would be. In different 14th Amendment contexts, and it was referred to but not necessarily mentioned outright, um, in the context of the unlawful use of race in the process, both under the Constitution and under the Voting Rights Act, the court has said that standing, the ability to protest a map, is limited to people who live in a district where harm has been done. And there are lots of thorny theoretical problems about why the court has limited standing in those cases, um, and lots of vigorous disagreement about whether the court was right to do so, but that is, is nevertheless a settled precedent in the 14th Amendment context. Uh, and so, as you say, one of the standing questions at the, the beginning of the uh, oral argument had to do with whether that should also be the case here, whether a plaintiff's alleging improper partisanship uh, and improper partisan results had to be from a particular district where that was manifest. The plaintiff's attorney responded and said, it doesn't really fit the nature of the injury, and this is where um, it seemed to be more consonant with a First Amendment analysis. The injury here was that the state had taken action against a set of people because of their political partisanship, and anyone who found themselves uh, burdened or acted upon because of their political partisanship in a First Amendment context, has standing to sue. Um, here, the plaintiff is alleging a injury because of his political partisanship. His party has been deprived of, uh, has been, the claim is, unjustly, unconstitutionally deprived of a fair shot um, by explicit state action targeting his political party. And so, under the First Amendment analysis, it's not confined to a particular district. The nature of the injury is separate. One uh, one hypo that's that's drawn by both I think Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito uh, I think tries to um, get at this question of harm being done somewhere else and then being sued over by someone uh, in a different part of the state and the, the hypo is I guess one district forbidding one particular party from putting up political signs uh, mm -hmm. and then having the, a member of that political party from a different part of the state sue over that and the justices will at least those two seem pretty skeptical that that could really be a colorable claim. Um, how like tight of an analogy, I guess, do you see that as with the claim here? I think it's a modestly tight analogy, um, which is to say, and, and I think actually the plaintiff's attorney who, again, you know, was asked to respond to this, they asked the question of him. Uh, I think he recognized that the analogy wasn't way off base, but it wasn't, wasn't exactly apt either. And it all flows from the nature of the injury. If the injury is you took down my signs, then yes, the person who's affected has to be the person who was injured and has to be localized. So um, the, a claim from somebody in a totally different part of the state that uh, elsewhere in the state somebody was taking down somebody else's signs isn't something the courts generally hear. You have to be directly affected. If the claim is a statewide conspiracy to take down the signs of 
members of that political party all over the state. I think the argument was maybe that's different and maybe that allows if if the claim is a conspiracy acting against all the voters in a party by specific action that is a local to some but intended to affect all then that might allow anybody in the state to bring such a claim um, and so the real question here when you're talking about the state legislature passing a law intending to uh, limit a party's prospects statewide is is this more like local hooligans in one part of the state or is this more like a state policy um, explaining that it will act against all members of a particular political party it's just going to do so by means of action in a few localities but it's really a statewide conspiracy and so I think the analogy is apt as far as it goes, and it wasn't sure whether uh, either Justice Alito or the Chief, it's not, it's not clear what they would have thought about a statewide conspiracy of that nature. One other hypothetical that was posed, seemed pretty interesting, was posed by Justice Kennedy to uh, the attorney arguing on behalf of the Wisconsin Senate. And his hypothetical was, what if you have a, a state constitution that requires both, one, that redistricting groups uh, abide by traditional principles, but two, that they they must benefit one party to the detriment of the other. What if that was in writing in a state constitution? And it seemed after a few exchanges that the attorney agreed that that would be problematic, perhaps unconstitutional. Um, does that sort of concede the whole point? Because what is the argument that that sort of thing would be unconstitutional, but that um, the same sort of process just not written and prescribed by state law um, w would not be unconstitutional. Substantively, both seem the same, a constitutionally prescribed extreme gerrymandering or just uh, extreme gerrymandering existing. I, I think you've hit on the most interesting and most important part of the argument, but that's also because uh, I seem to have a different theory in mind than most of the court does. Um, I think you're exactly right. I think that that, and the way I put it is, I think that that should concede the entire case, but I'm not sure that it did. Um, so in most areas of, well, let me start here. In most areas of law, we recognize that an official state body cannot take action against you because of your political party. And that's a relatively strict law across the board. There are some employment relationships in sort of high political office where that's not true. But for, for the vast majority of the time, the government can't seek to injure you because of your political party. It is unfathomable to imagine a tax law uh, that says on the face of it, we're going to have these people pay this much and these people pay this much. And if you're a Republican, you pay $10,000 more. And the injury in that law, the, the, the unconstitutional aspect of that law, doesn't depend on the number. It is just as unconstitutional to ask Republicans, because they are Republicans, to pay $10 million or $100,000 or $1. Because the principle is that the government can't seek to injure you based on your party affiliation based on what you believe essentially that's a, uh, a right guaranteed by the First Amendment. The same legislature that passes the law explicitly saying we are seeking to injure you 
if that's unconstitutional, as you indicate, in the vast majority of other constitutional doctrine, it is just as unconstitutional to engage in a prescribed motive, even if you don't admit it. So there's no difference between, for example, uh, passing a statute that says on its face, this statute is passed in order to discriminate based on race, and passing a statute that is designed to discriminate based on race, but just doesn't say so. The only difference is proof. It's a lot easier to prove the intent of the statute when it's right on the face. It's much harder to prove the intent of the statute when it's not on the face of the statute. But that's an evidentiary question, not a logical one. Sure. And uh, so when that exchange happened in the oral argument, um, I thought that was exceedingly meaningful because that involved a concession that the intent to discriminate is unlawful. Um, the intent to benefit one particular party by uh, injuring another is unlawful. And if it's unlawful to write it into the statute itself, then it's also got to be unlawful to do it without writing. The only question then is proof. How do you prove that that's what the legislature was doing rather than just assuming it? So I actually think that that concession should have ended the case because, again, in this area of law, the impact doesn't matter. The intent is what makes the difference. One dollar, a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars. It doesn't matter by what amount you intend to injure people because of their party. But curiously, the court has, has been troubled by that. It thinks that it won't be able to distinguish uh, unlawful partisanship from the regular political process without some estimate of the impact. That's weird. That's not necessarily in keeping with the rest of con law. Um, but that has been a consistent element of most of the cases so far. I can't really say it's been a consistent part of the doctrine so far because there's not really much binding doctrine in this area. The court's been so split so often that there really isn't consistent precedent. But it, it has been very much in the minds of many of the justices evaluating these questions. And so there's an additional element over and above the concession that was made in oral argument uh, that doesn't have to do with the intent of the legislature, but that has to do with the effect of a particular map. And so I expect that that will be something that justices all wrestle with as they try and figure out exactly what was and was not said at oral argument the other day. That's certainly the other big piece here is the court trying to figure out uh, how they are able or how they would be able or how courts below would be able to discern just the impacts, just the partisan impacts of a particular map, what ways of, of measuring a map could reliably show them um, whether it was extreme or whether it was okay. Um, so that, that's a big part of the, the argument. Um, some of those metrics, uh, social science measures, the equations um, that have been, have been used and presented in amicus briefs and by the respondents here, um, you know, demonstrate that there's a lot of uh, resultant scores from those measures show that, showing that Wisconsin you know, has pretty much locked in in a significant way a partisan advantage that will be durable. Um, but but nonetheless, Chief Justice Roberts and, and other justices, including Justice Breyer, uh, voiced some skepticism over these social science metrics. Uh, Roberts notably called it gobbledygook. Um, 
what I suppose there's something to his point, right? I mean, most constitutional doctrines are, don't refer to, to metrics or social science. There's usually kind of, if, it, if there is complicated multi-factor tests, they still refer to kind of binary yes, no questions. You know, there's something to his point, but is it just that this area of law is one where there is going to have to be a, a, a bit of math if we're talking about electoral law and, and line drawing and maps and things like that? So math scares many lawyers, um, <laughs> and and I am not immune from that. Um, but any lawyer in practice for very long knows that math is inevitable, and you either make your peace with that or not. Um, if you deal with financial transactions, if you deal with uh, the environment, if you deal with um, joint and several liability, if you deal with uh, having to assess damages, if you deal with elections, no less than anything else, uh, involved at the end of the day. And certainly for any lawyers who can get paid, those numbers that lawyers are usually all too happy to find out. Um, in any case that revile, revolves around complex evidence, there is a process that we've had in place for a very long time about adjudicating the science behind the complex evidence and having expert witnesses testify about it, having trial courts make decisions about it, having those decisions filter up. And you're absolutely right. Constitutional law doesn't depend on the nitty-gritty ins and outs of the math. And that's also true here. So there's been a lot made of the math at issue in this case um, and and the fact that several members of the court referred to it as gobbledygook has only enhanced the profile of the math and the debate about it. But this case isn't about the math. The case is about the very qualitative, very constitutional-ish sounding uh, standard that you set out before. Did one party intend to durably entrench itself at the expense of another party, and did they succeed? That's not a math standard. The math feeds in as evidence, as proof. Sometimes the math will be up to that, sometimes it won't. Uh, any practicing lawyer knows we've all, we've all had or seen cases where uh, whatever the science was, was good enough or wasn't good enough or didn't point in a particular direction in a particular case. And that's something that's worked out in trial as it was here. Um, in this particular case, as you mentioned, there were a number of different metrics, uh, all of which seemed to point in the same direction. And that includes plain old-fashioned evidence brought forward about what it was the legislature intended through depositions, that is, things that didn't involve much math at all. Um, the analogy that I'll offer... It is a qualitative standard to say that somebody was speeding. And you can set standards on what speeding involves without knowing how a radar gun works. You can set standards on what constitutes cognizable medical damage without knowing how an MRI works. You can set standards on what level of pollution is enough to cause serious harm to humans living in the area without knowing how the chemical water tests work. All of those latter things, all the science, add up to evidentiary offerings that help to prove a case. And the court was investigating that, it was probing it, um, and members of the court were grappling with whether they understood it and how to explain it to others. But the basic fundamental core of the case 
isn't the math. The basic fundamental core is the qualitative standard, and the math is really a question about proof. Roberts has one other pretty major qualm, and it's, I guess, related to this this issue. Perhaps I'm thinking that uh, social science metrics might make for mushy doctrine, but he, he recognizes correctly, certainly, that these sort of cases will come to the Supreme Court if they decide, okay, we're going to deal with them, we're going to dive into political gerrymandering. The cases that come to them will will be freighted with political considerations, and every victory will go pretty clearly to one party or the other. He, he's correct that these sorts of fights getting to them will have political tenor, and that the court could be seen as just preferring one party over the other, but uh, I take it you probably see that as not a good enough reason for the court to, to stay out in these cases. Yeah, that's right. And and I should acknowledge his concern is a very old one. Um, it's a very familiar one, and it's it's not one that's that's not serious. Um, that's a lot of double negatives. It's a legitimate cause for concern. Uh, it is part of the reason why the court didn't get into redistricting cases at all uh, in any meaningful way until the 1950s and 60s. Um, it was a constant refrain in that pivotal period. Uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was no shrinking violet, was emphatic on this point that the court should not allow itself to get drawn into the political thicket, as he called it. Um, but you're right that I don't think that should uh, cause the court to hesitate too terribly much here because that horse has already left the barn, left the barn decades ago. Um, as, as one example, by my count, there were approaching 235 cases filed this redistricting cycle. So since the census came out in 2010, the lines were redrawn all over the country in 2011. Approaching 235 cases filed in state and federal court over state legislative redistricting and congressional redistricting alone. We only got 50 states and 235 individual cases filed, there are cases being filed against virtually every plan. There were eight states that managed to escape litigation over their redistricting entirely this cycle. Um, several of those states only have one congressional district, so already you know, you're limiting your options to get sued when you're not redrawing the lines of your state because it only has one congressional district. Uh, but But there is a vast sea of litigation over the redistricting process, um, in part, I'll say, because you've got self-interested parties who are drawing the lines, and that's provoking rather extreme reaction um, from those who feel they were left out. The current doctrine is having to deal with a bunch of cases that the doctrine's not made for. So when there is no channel for truly legit partisan claims, uh, those claims get channeled into other doctrines that aren't built for it. So they get channeled into race claims or compactness claims, claims under state law, uh, where the real grief, the real grievance, is that partisan damage was done. And that's only finding expression through claims that are really built for other things. And courts now are absolutely, including the Supreme Court, absolutely making decisions with immediate and direct political consequences. It does not take long to figure out who, from a partisan perspective, who wins and who loses after any of these cases. Um, they're just framed in different lights. Sometimes those cases are really legit 
racial cases or compactness cases or cases under state law or other things like that. And sometimes they're simply stalking horses. And so uh, aside from general court involvement in politics, and many people have pointed to the court's engagement in Bush versus Gore as uh, as signaling that the court is open for business on cases with pretty direct and pretty heavy political consequences. Um, even aside from from other cases in the electoral arena, the court's already deciding vast numbers of redistricting cases, and state and federal courts across the country are deciding these cases. And I think they could be deciding them better if there were a cause of action that addressed uh, a significant problem now getting channeled into areas that doesn't really belong. Um, if you had a doctrine for claiming partisan harm, then judges could more easily get rid of cases where that's really the claim, it's just masked in other terms. I just wanted to touch on a, a couple more exchanges before we wrap up. One, one of them involved uh, Justice Breyer and Chief Justice Robert and, and Paul Smith arguing um, on behalf of the folks challenging the maps. Um, and Justice Breyer noted he was also keen to have a pretty clean doctrine um, and kind of made a sort of general point that in instances where a map will grant a, a party that got a minority share of the vote, a majority share of the seats in the legislature, you know, the court could be content to call that unfair. Uh, conversely, when a party got the majority share and the majority seats, that, that would seem fair to Justice Breyer. Um, and Roberts jumps in pretty quickly saying, well, you know, that's proportional representation and it's not a system of voting that we have in the U.S., deliberately so, um, to which uh, Paul Smith re replies that what his side is seeking is not proportional representation, but instead just partisan symmetry. And there is a distinction there. I don't, I don't think Chief Justice Roberts gave it um, much uh, merit, but what, what is that distinction and how does it work uh, here in the case? Yeah, there's there's an awful lot in that particular exchange um, and all wrapped up together. Uh, so let me try and tease it apart a little bit. Proportional representation is oddly, I think, occasionally used as the boogeyman. Um, it's that would cause proportional representation is the refrain of people who uh, are are opposed to any particular claim. Um, you saw it in debates over the Voting Rights Act. Uh, you saw it in, in the argument in uh, Gill the other day. And it's a little bit weird because proportional representation is an odd boogeyman to choose, is the notion that uh, you may have individuals who are represented uh, in legislative delegations in a way roughly proportional to party support in the population seems like a, 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 an odd an odd concept to cast as the evil concept. Um, that said, I actually agree with Justice Roberts. The Constitution does not require proportional representation. Um, and uh, whether that was a conscious choice or not, uh, it is, it's not something that the Constitution imposes on states or on Congress. Um, states or Congress could, in fact, uh, choose to, to supplement systems of representation in ways that made them more proportional, and there are movements in many states to do exactly that. Um, and many other countries have looked at our system and learned from it and have made similar moves of their own. But uh, the Constitution does not presently uh, require proportional representation. 
And the plaintiff's lawyer, Paul Smith, was absolutely right to push back and say, that's not what we're asking for here. So uh, this is true in two ways. A system that a system of proportional representation means that if 64% of the state uh, favors the Democratic Party, that 64% of the legislature will be Democrats, um, or that 62% of the state favors the, De the Republican Party, that 62% of the legislature will be, Demo will be Republicans. Proportional representation tries to mirror the precise distribution by party in the legislature, which is different from a system of majority rule. Um, Justice Breyer's concept of majority rule essentially says that if I have, if 60% if of the state favors a particular party, there's no constitutional mandate to have any particular number of representatives from that party, as long as the party that seems to have won the hearts and minds of a majority of the people actually is allowed to govern. And so there's a very big difference between a, a basic concept of majority rule and a true system of proportional representation. And both of those things are different from what the plaintiffs have been asking. The plaintiffs very deliberately and very carefully, and I think very wisely and appropriately, have said they're not asking for any particular result not a proportional representation result, not a majority rule result. They're asking for protection from the intentional imposition of a system that flouts majority rule. And that's very different. If by happenstance, without meaning to, legislature draws lines according to totally different criteria, and it so happens that in one election, there are more Democrats than Republicans in the state, but the Republicans win the legislature. The plaintiffs in this case say, we lose. That's not what we're here in court seeking. That's not a constitutional violation. That's not what this case is about. What they are seeking is the understanding from the court that the Constitution prohibits a state government from intentionally preventing a majority of the people from electing a majority of the, the representatives. And so I think you saw three very different concepts, easily conflated, but really quite distinct. And uh, I had to wonder, I mean, the, <laughs> both Justice Breyer and uh, the chief are incredibly intelligent and incredibly well-informed. Um, gobbledygook aside, the Chief Justice understands the, the underlying math actually extraordinarily well. Um, and I had to wonder if the conflation was a bit strategic um, because I don't believe that, I don't believe that they are um, unaware of the distinction in what's being requested. Justice Gorsuch, unsurprisingly, was concerned over finding a proper constitutional source for the kind of doctrine that those challenging the, the maps would, would uh want. He, one thing that he challenged Paul Smith on was whether or not he was really at, at heart bringing a 
a uh, Republican form of government claim, which mm-hmm. I confess to not really understanding what he's get, getting after there. Um, but he also, of course, challenged you know, whether or not we can find uh, in the First or Fourteenth Amendment any basis for a doctrine in this area. Um, notably, here Justice Ginsburg was much less, much more sanguine and, and rejoined in that their you know one person one vote had a constitutional source in kind of much the same way this this um, case could. Uh, what was Justice Gorsuch's uh, point with the Republican government claim, and um, I guess, what do you think about his, his concern overall about a constitutional basis for a doctrine here? Well, I think everybody, uh, or at least many individuals in this case, share the desire to root a case like this in a constitutional provision. It's part of the reason why um, a request for proportional representation is is off the table, is out of the question. Um, it is not the court's role, and I think everybody recognizes this, to impose a politically preferred uh, form of government or basis for representation, even if all the political scientists in the world think it's so, um, that doesn't give the court to authority the authority to mandate it. Um, nobody, but nobody in this case, is asking the court to do that. And so, at heart, everyone uh, wants to tie the claim for relief and the if the plaintiffs prevail the relief imposed to a provision of the constitution um, there are concerns about equal protection and about uh, the privileging of one party over another that sort of sound like the 14th amendment there are concerns about disfavoring members of the public because of their uh, political preferences and their uh, expressing a desire to associate with members of a particular political party that sound like they're in the First Amendment. And then this Republican form of government claim, you know, among uh, members of my current tribe, among academics, um, there's a lot of discussion about whether many of the claims about political structure um, involving claims about the initiative process, including claims about uh, about Partisan gerrymandering, including claims about um, the structure of some congressional committees and the like, uh, whether claims that are presented as individual claims really aren't analytically cleaner as claims under this guarantee in the Constitution that every state shall have a Republican form of government. Um, That's, to be perfectly clear about it, not a reference to a political party. That's a reference to choosing representatives through elections. The representatives then govern. Um, The court, for better or worse, in the middle of an armed rebellion in the 1800s, essentially took the Republican form of government clause off the table and essentially said, that provision isn't something that is justiciable. It is a fundamentally political question. Uh, a lot of people think that that had a lot more to do with the fact that there was an armed rebellion at the time that the court did not want to wade into um, than the true merits of interpretation of the clause. But uh, a lot of people think that there is theoretical merit to thinking of claims of political structure in terms of the constitutional guarantee of a Republican form of government. And I suspect that Justice Gorsuch was asking, not because he wants to revitalize the guarantee clause, but because his question was really a question about whether these things ought to be justiciable or not. That is, returning to the very start of our conversation on this case, whether the courts ought to be in the business 
of regulating these claims. Um, courts do and have comfortably weighted into claims on the 14th Amendment and Equal Protection Clause. They do and have comfortably weighted into claims on the First Amendment uh, and the, the privileging or, or action to the detriment of political parties. They have stayed out of Republican form of government claims, and I think that uh, Justice Gorsuch was not asking the question to please a lot of academics. I think he was attempting to, to get at the question of whether this sort of claim is the sort of claim courts ought to be interested in adjudicating. Okay, then maybe just one more to wrap up. It seems like the prevailing surmise here after the arguments is that Justice Kennedy has a swing vote team poised to, to strike down these maps. Of course, it's always pretty risky to count votes before they've been cast uh, to uh, torture a metaphor here in an election law case. Uh, but uh, uh, but how do you, do you feel like that similarly, do you think that's um, kind of where the smart money is? How do, you, how do you feel after these arguments as to how this case might come out? I feel much as I did uh, in the hours before the argument, which is much as I did in the weeks before the argument, which is much as I did in the months before the argument, as, as an election law scholar and practitioner, I am incredibly loath to count the votes before they are cast. Uh, and and we have all come through an election where there has been an awful lot of surprise uh, put in place by people thinking they can count the votes before they're cast. Uh, and so it's, it's a pretty good reminder of the dangers of that. Um, I think that, look, the last time this issue was raised, there were four votes on one side, four votes on another side, Justice Kennedy squarely in the center. There are five new members of the court in the last 13 years. And I think many people were curious about where the newer members of the court would line up. We hadn't heard from Justice Gorsuch. We hadn't heard from the chief. We hadn't heard from Justice Alito. We hadn't heard from Justice Kagan or Sotomayor. And I think uh, the argument tended to show, and I'll say tended because, as you say, they haven't cast their votes yet, um, that several of the more conservative newer judges were leaning against the plaintiff's claim, and several of the more liberal newer judges were leaning for the plaintiff's claim. And so a lot of people think that that leaves Justice Kennedy once again squarely in the center, perhaps of a similar 4-4 split. And if you think you know where Justice Kennedy is going to come out on this case, then you have more insight into Justice Kennedy than I think Justice Kennedy does. Um, I this issue and this case are hard for him. He has left the door open because he believes there's a wrong. He deeply believes there's a wrong, um, but he has not seen the best way forward to righting that wrong just yet. And I think only he knows whether he has found that way now. And I think he probably does not even know that yet. I think he'll be wrestling with this issue. Um, this is something that he's thought long and hard about for 13 years, and I think uh, a few months past argument is not too long to ask to give him the space to think about it further. Um, we will all know very soon, but uh, I think until that day, I'm really not sure how it's going to come out. Okay, well, as you say, we'll find out um, soon enough here the resolution, though the issue remains in doubt for a few more months. One thing is, is for certain it's fun to have um, these major cases back on the Supreme Court docket after a couple of relatively quiet terms. But for now, uh, Professor Justin Levitt from Loyola Law School, thanks so much for taking so much time out to, to chat with me about this case. Obviously, a, a really fascinating one, and uh, one we'll be watching for uh, here in the next few months. Of course, my profound pleasure. 
And with that, our show for October 6th, 2017 is complete. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it and look forward to speaking to you next Friday. I'm Brian Cardile. Have a great week.